I want to wish you a happy Father's Day, and I certainly am, am grateful for my earthly father. My, my father pastored uh, for many, many years, and then he was a director of missions for about 20, 22 years. He and my mom served churches in southern Missouri uh, as uh, director of missions, and I'm grateful for, for, for my folks. They're both in heaven now. Uh, my dad was an incredible man, though. I grew up in the city of Metropolis, Illinois, which is home of Superman. It's true. It's true. My dad had a big S on his chest. It's, it's true because occasionally they would either call him the pastor of First Baptist Church, whose name was Charles Chandler, Dr. Chandler, or they would call him my, my dad, D. Spear, and, and they would dress them up like Superman. And, and the, the problem was Charles had that little curl. My dad was bald. Okay, so he didn't look anything like Superman, but uh, we... Uh, we still have that honorary certificate that says D.T. Spear was, was uh, honorary Superman for, for several different events. But later in my dad's life, uh, after my mom passed, he, uh, he, he got dementia. And then he, uh, he succumbed to Alzheimer's. In the process, I will tell you that, that some of the songs I just heard, God's Word, uh, my dad never, ever forgot Scripture. My dad could quote verse by verse through the book of Ephesians or Galatians. He, he could quote that, an amazing memory. And, uh, even in his later years, he would quote scripture to me. But one of the things after my mom passed away, my dad, my mom was a meticulous housekeeper. She would just, I mean, everything had its place and everything was in order. And when my mom passed, we got really worried about my dad because things started piling up, so to speak. Uh, you know, men are not notoriously great about keeping things in, in order. And so I, I would get on to my dad all the time. I'd say, Dad, you got to clean this up. And, and then finally, I just said, Dad, you can't cook anymore <laughs> because you, you just can't do it. We're going to get you a gift certificate or we're going to get you an account down at Lola's restaurant. And he'd go down there. Well, anyway, I came in one day and that the back rugs at the door were just Thin. They were threadbare. Everything. I, I, mean, I mean, my mom would have been appalled. And I said, Dad, you got to get some new rugs in this house. All right. All right. I will. I will. And I knew he'd forget. And, and he was living by himself. I was coming up there every, every other day, it seemed like, and taking care of his bills and everything. And I, I was up there later that week. And, and uh, we were sitting at Lola's restaurant eating breakfast. And he said, by the way, I got those new rugs. I said, huh? You did? He said, I did. He said, you know, I go to the auction house about twice a week. And I said, oh, no, Daddy, no. <laughs> no, really, no, 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 no. He said, your mother would love them. They have animals on it. They have some owls on it. They have some other things. And, and I, I said, oh, okay, Daddy. And I was writing checks out. And I said, I'm, I'm going to head to the house. You meet me at the house now. we got some business to take care of. And I walked up to that back door, ladies and gentlemen, I unlocked the door, and I'd forgotten that he said I bought rugs, but he'd bought these at an auction house on a Thursday night. And I walked in, and as my mother so taught me to aptly you know, wipe my feet as I'm coming to the house, I looked down, and there at my dad's back door, Southern Baptist pastor, director of missions, it said, welcome to Hooters. 
I went to the front door and it said the same thing. He came prancing up in there. He said, you like the new rugs? And I said, Dad, do you know what? Do you, it's a restaurant. It's a restaurant and girls dress pretty scantily. There, he said, how do you know that? I said, Dad, you should not have those rugs there. He said, well, I thought your mother would like them because they got owls on them. I said, oh. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. He said, why don't you take them then? I said, what am I going to do with them? He said, I don't know. Maybe the boys would want them. I said, oh, great. I'm giving you rugs from your grandfather, Southern Baptist pastor that says, welcome to Hooters. No, thank you. Whew. I tell you what, my father was an incredible witness, though, for the Lord. And he, he literally did everything for me. He taught me how to shave. He taught me how to drive. He taught me how to pray. He taught me how to read God's Word. He took me to the mission field when I was eight years old. And he kept taking me to the mission field. He had time. He did what dads do. He stayed with his kids. He was faithful to my mom. He honored her for all of his life. And then my sister and I get to reap the results of that. We get to, to have the dividends and the, the wonder of having a dad. Dads, I want to encourage you today. I'm not going to preach to you today, but I want to encourage you to stay strong. Be strong and courageous. Remember last week we talked about that. In fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, be, be strong, take courage. Say it to them. All right. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me. We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to go back this morning. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. I open your Bibles to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 15. I want to begin reading in verse 22. And I want to read to the end of the, the chapter, verse 27. You, you, you don't need me to give you the context, but I'm going to just give you enough here. Uh, the children of Israel, they have just had a marvelous deliverance from Egypt. They've just come through the Red Sea episode. And in the first 21 verses of Exodus 15... You have the song of Moses and the children of Israel as they praise God, as they praise the Lord for all that he's done. And then pick up at verse 22 with me for just a moment. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and there they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, 
and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I believe that one of the most effective weapons that the devil has ever forged against any believer or against the church itself is the weapon of discouragement. This morning I want to talk to you about defenses against discouragement, and I believe that, that my greatest battle with the enemy and your greatest battle is at the point of your discouragement. My greatest times of weaknesses have come through discouragement. My greatest times of unbelief and panic and anxiety and fretfulness have come through that terrible thing called discouragement. And when the devil seeks to try to thwart the purpose of God, the work of God in the lives of believers, I think his number one weapon is this weapon of discouragement and disillusionment. And so we sometimes have this inadequate view of the Christian life. In fact, we don't, we don't know what to expect. And so when something comes along that, that knocks us off balance, it, it destroys our spiritual equilibrium, we find ourselves plunged into despair and disillusionment and discouragement. As I read through the Israelites' experiences, Moses is, is taking them through the wilderness I find here a classic record of discouragement. If there was ever a man that had a right to be discouraged, ladies and gentlemen, it was Moses. Man, he, he, it, it was, I, I get a lot of comfort from Moses. I, I, I've never pastored that large of a congregation as Moses did, but anytime I, I, I had anyone murmuring or complaining, you know, uh, churches do that sometimes, don't they? Church members do that. It's called the cooing of the doves, that murmuring, and that, that complaining. But you see, I, I would begin to feel sorry for myself. If you've ever been in ministry, you understand what I'm talking about. I thought about Moses, who had upwards of three million people griping into him all at once. You know, that encourages me. Moses was a man who lived on the edge of discouragement. But these stories, and this story in particular, is rich in its instruction because the Bible makes it very clear that the things that happened to them have happened to us as examples, and they are meant for instruction and edification. I want to talk to you this morning and communicate with you and share with you some defenses against discouragement. Now, I don't want you to look at your neighbor. I want you to think about this self, uh, by yourself, this question. Am I, or have I been, or, or, or have I been recently discouraged about something that is going on in my life spiritually? Don't answer that question. Don't raise your hand. Don't wave at me or anything like that. But what I want you to do this morning is to begin to think, how in the world can I move on from where I'm at. Now, I've already intimated that sometimes we like to know, and in fact, all the time, if you ask my wife, I like to know what's going to happen. I like to know what's ahead of me. Don't you all? I like that. If you know, what, if you know there's going to be a jolt, you can brace yourself for it. Jennifer and I recently traveled on vacation to uh, the Smoky Mountains, and then we went out to Williamsburg. We had a wonderful time, but sometimes when I'm driving, I have a tendency to drive a little too fast. Imagine that, a Baptist preacher driving too fast. 
And sometimes I have a tendency to, to kind of quickly turn into somebody else's lane and, and I, and, and Jennifer, bless her heart, she always wants me to drive, but the truth of the matter is Jennifer's a much better driver than I am. That's just a fact. Some of you wives are smiling because you feel the same. But every time when, when I would get up too close to someone's back end, or she would, <gasps> so finally I've, I've been looking around for one of those Jesus bars to put in my truck so she can hang on to it and not, <gasps> or she'll, I, I've been trying to figure out how I can put a brake pedal on the other side too. She just doesn't like that jolt and that, that feeling of uneasiness. None of us do. Well, listen, most, most people find themselves a lot of times wallowing in self-pitying discouragement because they don't know what to expect. They didn't, the people of Israel didn't know what to, to think. God, where would God take them in accomplishing his purpose and leading them to this land that was called the land of promise and fullness? I want us to, to look at this strange little incident as Moses brings the people to the waters of Marah and to see their reaction and to see God's reaction to them. I think we can learn some things about how we can be prepared and defended for discouragement. Moses was a man who had completely committed his life to God. And the Bible makes it clear that he had given up everything, the riches of Pharaoh, he had given up the palace, he had given up the, all of that, all to suffer for Christ's sake. He was a man who had a tremendous spiritual experience, and he started out with this glow of victory on his face. Remember last week we talked about the life of victory, the exchange life, and next week we're going to look into what it means to cross over. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 3 next week, and, and, and yet I want to show you this past experience because Moses met one difficulty after another, and he was always living at the point of discouragement. There's some principles I want to point out to you this morning in God's Word. If you've got your, your sermon notes and your, your, your pen or your pencil there, I want you to write this down. Number one, if you're going to defend against discouragement, you must understand that the greatest successes of life are often followed by failure. Now, you'll miss the impact of this little story if you ignore the context of it. They had just passed through the Red Sea, ladies and gentlemen. What a, what a miracle. They had seen the Red Sea come together and then drown the Egyptian army that were, was pursuing them. And the people stood on the shore as they watched the waves wash those dead bodies of the Egyptian taskmasters up on that shore. I can imagine as they walked around looking at the bodies and saying, I, I recognize him. Yes, sir. He was the one who had whipped me. He was the one who had made me make those bricks the hard way. I recognize him. He's dead now. I've been liberated from that old Egyptian taskmaster. And as they surveyed the scene, all of those dead Egyptians, they felt such liberation and freedom surge through their soul. And Moses began to sing, and Israel began to sing. I wish 
I wish we had time to just read the first 21 verses of chapter 15, but it is absolutely amazing. But just listen to verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people which you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength with your holy habitation. Look at verses 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance and the place, O Lord, which you have made for us to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Man, if I'd have walked into that service on that day and heard that kind of singing and shouting and praising, you would have thought, these people have arrived. Man, they have come to the place. They have it made. All of their trials are behind them. And in three days, they are wallowing in failure. In three days, they find themselves in a place called Mara, a place of bitter water, and they immediately forget everything they had previously said. I thought the Lord was going to reign forever and ever. You know, I have to be honest with you. I find so much uh, similarity in what the children of Israel have experienced and what so many churches experience. I thought there was no God like our God. I thought he was going to lead us into a land and establish an inheritance. And, and here they are murmuring and grumbling and griping to Moses because you're afraid you're going to die of thirst. One of the greatest spiritual principles of life that I have found is this, that the greatest successes of life are often followed by failure. And if you don't realize that, you're going to be plunged into despondency and discouragement. I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. He has ever a man experienced a greater victory than that victory when he sees the heads of those 450 prophets of Baal roll like crushed eggs down the hillside and the heavens open and God begins to baptize the earth in water. Elijah standing there on Mount Carmel, what a great success, and yet a short time later you find him running from Jezebel and whining under a juniper tree like a whipped pup, wishing that God would take his life, would kill him. I think about the Israelites as they entered into Canaan. We're going to go there. And they go into Jericho, and they march around the city once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, seven times, victory was so easy. All they had to do was just have a little pre-celebration parade and a little shouting and blow a few trumpets. And walls began to come tumbling down. And then in the next chapter, we find Ai, where they flee from the people. I think about Simon Peter on the night that Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am, Simon? Everybody gives their opinion, and Simon Peter opens his mouth. And Simon Peter was pretty good about that. You know, Simon loved the taste of sock. He was always opening his mouth. And he said, Lord, thou art the Christ, 
the son of the living God. <laughs> Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. You have been you have become a divine recipient of divine revelation. What a moment, what a success. Simon has been singled out by God to receive a revelation that none of the other disciples had really accurately or fully received. And what so often happens is when you have one great spiritual experience, you get to thinking that makes you an expert in all things spiritual. And the very next, next moment, Jesus is saying to that same man, Simon, get thee behind me Satan you don't understand the things of God at all success followed by failure what happens when that occurs well I think the first thing that happens when we find ourselves in bitter waters is we begin to say I wonder I wonder where I got off track I wonder what I did wrong I wonder where I missed God surely this is not the will of God but it is the interesting thing about this that Myra was on the map that God was leading them by. God led them right to that place. The Bible says that Moses led them, but if you read on, you will find that God was leading them through Moses. I want you to understand that when you arrive at a situation, it may be that you arrive at the place of bitter waters. Ladies and gentlemen, that does not mean you are out of the will of God. It probably means that you're right smack dab in the middle of God's will. Do you know why? Because God uses this failure to prove us. It says that he proved them there. I thought they had been proved at the Red Sea experience. They just had this marvelous demonstration of the omnipotence of God at the Red Sea. But folks, I want you to understand that you do not grow and learn to trust God at the Red Sea sensational miracle. God doesn't test his people and prove his people in miraculous happenings like the Red Sea. He tests them and he proves them when they're up against the daily, everyday routine of life. And what so often happens is that we, we have this marvelous, cataclysmic, ecstatic experience walking about three feet off the ground. And we think we're equipped for anything that comes along, but miracles never produce faith. You can have one Red Sea experience after another, and that's not the training ground for living for Jesus Christ. That's not how you become a, a life of victory. The training ground is when you wonder where your next drink of water is coming from. That's the testing. And God led them to bitter waters to see if they had learned anything over at the Red Sea. Sure enough, they hadn't. You know, I'm so much like them. So are you. God is going to test you. If this week you have had a great experience, I don't mean to be a person that has a pessimistic attitude, but if you've had a great experience with the Lord, get ready. He's going to test you at the point of that experience. And sometimes, often, the greatest successes of your life are followed by failure. Now, he led them there. Now, don't miss this. Not only to prove them, but it says he also leads us to places like this to purify us. He made a statue, a statue and an ordinance 
and a commandment. All right, I, I don't want you to get the idea that you're spiritually superior to the Egyptians. The same plagues, the same diseases I put on the Egyptians, I will put on you unless you come to the place where you hearken to my word, where you obey my word, and where you do everything I tell you to do. And the experience of failure was to purify these people of their spiritual satisfaction and superiority and to reveal to them the murmuring and distrust and disbelief that was in their hearts. I find that there are times when it is easy to praise the Lord, to trust God. And then I find God leading me to some bitter waters and it is not easy to praise him and it is not easy to trust him but God is saying to me Alan I am not only proving you I am purifying you but he's also doing something else ladies and gentlemen he's preparing me he's not only proving you and purifying you but now church listen to me he is preparing you for a new level, for a new future. You see, if you read over in the next chapter, you'll find they came to another situation in which they don't have any food. They're worried now about hunger. And every time God leads you through one of those experiences, it is in order that he might prepare you for more intense struggles, for greater battles, and to equip you for winning greater victories. The first thing to remember is this. The greatest successes of life are often followed by failure. But the second thing, the second spiritual principle we find in this scripture is this, that the greatest services of life are often followed by forgetfulness. I'll turn 62 this summer. I know I don't look that old, do I? I hope not. I hope I, I you know, and I really don't care if I look that old. I don't want to act that old. I can remember when I thought 62 was ancient. Now, looks pretty good. You know, I can remember when my dad turned 60 and I thought, man, he's getting old. Uh, my kids, I know they, they probably say the same thing about me that I always said about, you know, my folks. But, but I'm telling you, 62 this summer is the new 30. Okay, I got some of you back anyway. The greatest services of life are often followed by forgetfulness. Some of you will forget that. It is so hard you know, sometimes to believe this, but here was Moses, get this picture, who led them out of Egypt under the mighty hand of God, who when they were stuck at the Red Sea, obeyed God, and it was Moses, the man of God, who raised his hand and wielded the rod of God and parted the waters and delivered the people. You would think they would remember that. But the very moment they get into a tight situation, what do they do? They forget. And they began to accuse Moses and blame Moses and murmur against Moses. The greatest services of life are often followed by forgetfulness. I want to tell you something. You need to get ready to be unappreciated. There is nothing that will discourage you anymore than being unappreciated and having people forget. There's something about human nature that can in a moment forget a record of faithful service. 
you're going to be unappreciated many times in your Christian life. I, I pastored, I was senior pastor of Southern Baptist Churches for about 33 years of my life. And so I, I served also on staff as a minister of worship. I was a student pastor. I, I kind of did everything in those beginning days and, and, and throughout the years. And, but uh, I, I will tell you, and my wife will tell you this, that, that I remember only the negative comments and not always the good comments. And I had so many more good comments, but a pastor occasionally will receive an anonymous letter. I hate anonymous letters. Please don't send me an anonymous letter. But very early in my pastorate, I got, uh, as a senior pastor, I got an anonymous letter. And oh, it was scathing. It, it talked about how I had ruined and wrecked this church. It was a small town, southern Illinois. It was a very, uh, very refined, dignified, somewhat petrified church. And they had chandeliers, and they didn't even know what they were for. And they had white furniture, and they had the red carpet and the white furniture up in the front and the pastor was supposed to sit up here all dignified and with his legs perfectly crossed the right way and you were to be preparing to prepare the people for their preparation for the rest of the week you know all that we had snowbirds in our church and and they would come to florida and, and they were very well known in that church they were pretty much the pillars of that church in in their minds anyway and they'd come to florida for about eight months out of the year when they came back they sat right over here they they found that someone was sitting in their pew had their family name on the pew and Big Joe Pierce and his seven children and wife had started taking over that pew. And they came in on that Sunday morning, and I could see them headed for that pew. And I'm thinking, oh, no, well, Big Joe, he'd only been a Christian about six months. They didn't know he'd been a Christian. They didn't even know who he was. Big Joe was 6'8", weighed about 340. And he reached down to this little lady, senior adult lady, shook her hand, said, oh, you're visiting in our church today. We're so glad to have you. They'd been members there for 70 years. She said, how dare you? She said, you're sitting in our pew. You're going to need to move. She came to me later that day and said, hey, we got to do something about this church. It's full. I don't like it. It's full of people. I don't know. They're not like me. I said, Lola, I'm sorry, but the church has really changed. It's not going to have people just like you. I got a letter, and I, I called my dad. I said, what do you think I ought to do about this letter? And he said, you ought to just rip it up and throw it in the trash can. Don't, don't, don't. Well, you know, sometimes sons don't follow directions. And I got up one Sunday morning, that following Sunday morning, I read at the congregation, and then I ripped it up. And I said, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. My dad gave me good instruction that. I was 30-something, just, just so green you know I ripped that letter up put it up met people at the door and sure enough here comes that lady she goes I want to know why you read that letter I said I want to know why you wrote that letter she said let me tell you why I wrote that letter <laughs> now I'll tell you that wasn't very classy of me but it wasn't classy of her either sometimes we only remember the negative let me tell you, when Moses started hearing all this murmuring, he didn't take it personally. You know how I know that? Because he, he began 
it's to the eternal credit of Moses that he never took these things personally. You are going to be in deep trouble if you start taking things personally. You need to remember the word of the Lord to his servant. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. I am the ambassador for Christ, and God beseeches us in Christ's stead. I stand in Christ's place. I am his representative. When people reject me, I must not take it personally. It will make you bitter and resentful. You'll start whining in self-pity, but then don't take it out on the people either. Once you know that Moses exercised great control, you never find him turning against the people and say, no, this is your fault. And then here's what you do, ladies and gentlemen. You take it to the Lord. He cried out unto the Lord, and there are two kinds of people in this building today. There are those who will complain, and there are those who cry out to the Lord. I pray that you're one of those who will cry out to the Lord. The Bible says that when he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he told him to throw it into the water and when he threw it into the water, those bitter waters became sweet. I want you to notice that tree was there all the time, but Moses didn't recognize it. God had to show it to him. In the midst of our worst time, in the midst of your most bitter experience, if you will, instead of complaining and griping and taking it personally, cry out to the Lord. He will show you something that will make it sweet. And he will move into your life in an unexplainable, miraculous, mysterious way and show you how to make that experience sweet. The thing that really struck me, though it is not so much that they forgot Moses, they forgot God. First Baptist Church, listen to me. We cannot forget God. God is the God of this church. He is, he is God. Jesus is Lord of First Baptist Church. And you read back through that hymn and in the verses of chapter 50, and they talked about God's power to deliver, yet they're whining and worrying about a loss of water and bitter water. And, and the, the greatest services of life are often followed by forgetfulness. One last word. The greatest the greatest shortages of life are followed by fullness. Look at verse 27. And there they came to Elim, and there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, and they, they encamped there by the waters. The greatest shortage, shortages of life are always followed by fullness. And I want you to notice that the Bible says they kept going, and they came to Elim. And, and you and I, we're going to journey together over the, the next several months, and we will find some obstacles and some op opposition. And the devil is probably going to wage some spiritual war war against you and threaten you with discouragement if you're not already there. But in the midst of that, just keep going. Be strong. Take courage. Trust God. Obey God regardless of what it may look like. Obey God. What, what if I don't feel like praying? Keep praying. What if I don't feel like studying God's word? Study God's word. What if, what if I, I, I don't want to obey? Obey, keep his statutes, do everything God says. Keep on following, keep on moving because church, listen to me, over the hill, there is an Elim. 
And when a man or a woman keeps on moving and keeps on trusting God, in the midst of sometimes often bitter waters, you will come to Elim, where the Bible says there are 12 wells, one for every tribe and 70 palm trees. That's one for every elder. Listen, wasn't too far back, they didn't even have any water except the bitter water. And now each tribe has its own artesian spring bubbling up out of the ground. And every elder has his own palm tree. All they needed was water, but God gave them shade. The Lord always gives you more than you expect. They didn't need the shade, but God said, I'm going to throw in something a little bit extra here. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is a verse that says, and Jesus says, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The thing I like about Revelation chapter 2, verse, or Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, is this. Jesus said, when I come, first of all, I'll set at your table. I'll eat what you have. And then he says, I want you to sit at my table and let me feed you for a while. I'll sup with you. I'll come in as your guest, and then I'll become the host, and I'll feed you. You ever, you ever notice how many times that the people of God are running out of necessities? Jesus comes to John's, John chapter 6, and they're having an outdoor meeting, and they don't have any food, and people begin to pass out from hunger, and one little boy with a lunch that his mom has fixed there, the, the disciples begin to moan and groan and wonder how in the world we, we're going to get food for all these people. And, and Jesus distributes bread and fish, and they have several baskets left over, several, several things left over of bread. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that Jesus always packs more than we can imagine. The ways of God are different. I want you to see this. God never ever abandons his purpose. He can never be frustrated in his will. God has a plan for your life and First Baptist Church, he has a plan and he is not going to abandon you. He has a future for you. He will keep on giving the examination until we pass. You can't flunk out of this class. He keeps on giving you the test over and over. And listen, I want to pass the test. I want to save myself a lot of trouble, but I want you to hear it. They've come to Elim. They camp there. Plenty of water. Each tribe has its own well. Each elder has its own palm tree. They moved on. And in chapter 16, once again, they murmur against the Lord. Success followed by failure. Because they came to a place where they had no food. No bread. Service was followed by forgetfulness. They murmured against the Lord again, and shortages followed by fullness because God fed them abundantly. That's the cycle. If you read the history of Israel, you'll find that's the cycle again and again and again because God is leading us in order to teach us to trust Him. God leads you. That way, in order that you might trust him. Over the next several months, I'm not going to ask you to trust in Alan Spear. I'm not going to ask you to trust in your good staff. They're good folks. They're great leaders. 
but they don't need your trust per se. The Lord needs your trust. First Baptist Church, God is going to lead us through a journey. And in that journey, we're going to find who we are. I've already said to several of you, but, and, and my wife knows this, we've, we've talked, I love this church. I love this church. When I came here, I, I, I love your staff. I, I, I have made friends here. I've made long acquaintances. We have a connection with Agape Flights, with Keith and Clara Starkey here. I love this church and so grateful to, to be a part of it for this season. But in this season, what I'm asking God to do is to help us learn to trust him. And by trusting him, that means falling before him, saying, Lord, we don't know exactly how and where and when and why, but we trust you. You know, when answers aren't enough, there's Jesus. I have learned, and I am in the process of learning how to trust and how to obey. I'm not there yet. I'm not completely yet there yet. Sometimes I want to fix stuff myself. But God says, Alan, trust me. This past week, my daughter turned 35. Man, it seems like yesterday she was like that. I just got a, I just got a text from her right before I came up to speak. She's my, my oldest, and she's the one that always contacts me first on Father's Day because the other four are boys. They'll, they'll call about 10, 10 till midnight tonight. Happy Father's Day. I almost forgot. You know. But Laura, she'll be here next week, and she's She's my daughter. She, she said to me, and she wrote to me these words. As a child, a lot of times, I took for granted my father's preaching every Sunday. Some Sundays I dreaded going to church. Imagine that from a preacher's kid. And of course, as we grow older, we realize that those things are very important in our lives. I cherish my dad's messages, his sermons. It connects me to my family. It helps me stay grounded in God's word. My favorite Christmas gift that year was four CDs that my dad gave me of his sermons. I didn't give those to her as a gift, I want you to know. She asked me for them, but she said, I love my dad. I don't care what anyone else thinks to me. He is the best and will always be my number one. I carry that, yeah. I carry that around with me and read it often, not, not because I want my ego inflated, but because I need to remember there's somebody still following there's somebody still watching. And they need us to lead well. First Baptist Church, I want to lead well in the weeks and months ahead with you. And my prayer is that we will trust God. We will surrender and say, Lord, we're ready for all that you have. Let's pray together.